Welcome to the Pro Aging Podcast. I'm Steve Gurney, founder of Positive Aging Community. We're excited that you can join us for our interactive discussions with pioneers and thought leaders on a wide variety of topics related to aging and longevity. We're able to bring these discussions to you along with copies of the Positive Aging Sourcebook, thanks to the support of our Positive Aging Community Champions. Visit ProAging.com to connect with them and find hundreds of other resources. Well, according to research from the Insurance Studies Institute, more than half a million individuals lapse their life insurance policies, and two million individuals surrender their policies each year. Yet only 3,000 took advantage of life insurance or life settlements. This is probably due to the fact that 90% of seniors report that they might have considered a life settlement if they'd only been aware of the option. So this is why today we've got Lisa Reberg and Trey Worth who are going to help us understand this unique uh, funding source that's available to those that have life insurance policies. So let's jump into the discussion. Hit record. And I need to let our um, YouTube and LinkedIn people into the mix here. And uh, I am really charged up about today's discussion because affordability and money matters are things that always come up on our discussions. And uh, we need to know all the different resources. I like to call them spokes in the wheel, that places where we can go, vehicles that we can utilize, guidance we can get that might make it uh, provide us with income or, or assets depending on each of our situations. And so today we're going to learn about one of those spokes in the wheel, life insurance settlements. And uh, to do this, we have uh, Lisa and Troy, who uh, let me welcome to the stage here and we can get to know them a little bit better and dive into this topic. So, hey, Lisa, um, and I, I will we'll get Troy on the stage here, but um, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, you all are in sunny California today, so we're coast to coast with our discussion. Um, before we dive into life insurance settlements, let's get to know the two of you a little bit better. Um, uh, Lisa, uh, well, just jump in and tell us a little bit about your background. Lisa, if you want to go first, ladies, go first. I'll, I'll jump right in. Um, thanks you for the opportunity, Steve. It's absolutely a, pr a privilege to be here and delighted. Uh, yes, Lisa Rayberg, President Rayberg Life Insurance Settlements. I've been in the insurance industry for over 30 years, um, focused solely on uh, helping insurance agents and financial uh, advisors with their clients and um, have been focusing solely on life insurance settlements for seven years. This is all we do. Um, and I'm excited about it. I'm privileged to serve clients and work with people like Troy. And um, I just appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so, so Lisa, you're our expert on life insurance settlements, un understanding how they work, how you apply for it and, and what have you. And Troy, I believe you're an, a financial advisor and have more of a, a macro view of when you're working with a client, what resources do you sort of draw from? Is, is that correct? 
Yeah. I mean, just as far as my background, uh, I started in the insurance industry with a big firm, uh, insurance and financial planning in 1996. Um, started doing fee-based planning in 2000. And so, um, you know, part of the, 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 my business does revolve around insurance and understanding that, uh, but it's also about the, the financial plan and, um, and really understanding how and if certain, you know, insurance products or what, what have you are needed. Um, but it's, as you say, a focus on a holistic planning approach to, uh, to a person's financial life. Excellent. I, I love it. And I'm just making sure I got everything here. Okay, great. Well, um, let's dive into this. And Lisa, uh, thank you for uh, sending over your slide deck. I can refer to any of the slides on there when when you'd like me to. But but my kind of vision, I, I, I've been in this field for 33 years, and I believe, I, I, I'm not sure when it was, but I heard this term viatical settlements, and it was primarily uh, a, a program that was created because we had a lot of folks, you know, passing away from AIDS, and they needed income and things like that. Was, was that when life insurance settlements started and do they still call them viaticals or give us an overview of what are these and how they came about? Right, so um, good question. There is a slide on the history, um, Steve, but okay. to give you give you an idea this has been legal since 1911 that really surprises people like how does that work and at the end what happened is there was a supreme court decision called grigsby versus russell and what and um, justice oliver wendell holmes in his statement of decision in grigsby versus russell and i'm an insurance geek and love the backstory but suffice it to say that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes says that your life insurance policy is an asset that you own. And that is what makes our service go. That's what makes this legal in the United States. Um, and any life insurance policy is an asset, a term policy or those policies that have cash value in them, they are all assets that you own. And so Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes says, as an asset that you own, you can transfer ownership of this asset to anybody you want, any time you want, you can sell it. And that's exactly what happens. So um, real briefly, back to your point, Steve, the market doesn't start until the 80s with those viaticals. But as uh, medical technology allowed us to live longer, right, if, if I'm diagnosed with AIDS today, it is not the two to three year life expectancy that it was in the 80s. Medical technology has allowed us to live longer. So as we were living longer, the life insurance settlements market started to form. So viaticals technically are here today. They are for clients that have less than two years to live. Oh. But the vast majority of our market is life insurance insurance settlements, which is for clients that have longer than two years to live. Okay. That I didn't understand the distinction. I thought it was a, a synonymous term. And, and so then it looks like in 95, uh, Life Insurance Settlement Association, LISA was, was formed. And, and that's a great resource with a lot of data and, and uh, monitoring the regulations, correct? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So nothing really happens um, for obviously several years after the viaticals, but Lisa starts L-I-S-A capitals, right? Lisa.org um, starts working with NCOIL, which is the National Congress of Insurance Legislators and the NAIC, which is National Association of Insurance Commissioners. This is a good thing to form model language to protect consumers because when viaticals first started in the 80s, there was absolutely no regulation. There was no um, parameters in any way, shape or form, which is kind of creepy on a good day, right? And so sometimes when financial advisors or insurance agents that have been around a while think about viaticals, they think that they're bad. And that's not true because they're thinking about the old days, right? Today, we are highly regulated. We, meaning as a market, are highly regulated by the departments of insurance across the country. So not only my side of it, but the buyers as well. Great, great. Um, okay, so now let's kind of dive into, that's great for the background, but the long and the short of it, you know, what is a life insurance settlement? And um, uh, because I guess, you know, my financial planner advised me to get, me and my wife to get life insurance because as we're both working, if one of us passes away, the the surviving spouse needs income to maintain that family lifestyle. I, I guess for many of us though, you, you sort of get to the end of that term and you may sort of evaluate. It's sort of like, is there anybody that really needs uh, this money to survive if I pass away? Um, and I, you have, I guess you got that choice to let it expire or, um, or talk to talk to somebody about a settlement am i thinking about it correctly yeah no absolutely i think um uh just just by way of example even this this week i had a call from a client and you know you you talk about a, a, a scenario where it's a family situation but really where we see most of these policies that really are 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 of maybe a higher you know uh value is in a business setting where you have a buy sell agreement you have two business owners three business owners etc and there's there's uh life insurance on them to protect the families and to make sure that there's liquidity should should the partner die that the existing business owners can keep the business going and and have everything stay intact so in this scenario you know here's a 70 year old guy who's been running his business for a long time all three partners have decided to sell the business and he's like man i don't really need this policy as a matter of fact it's a term policy and i said well you know you can get rid of it you can we could just cancel it but there is a secondary market and you know if it, it if it would be of interest to you we could shop it i have no way of you know we have no way of knowing whether that policy would have um value or if there would be a a, a market for it but we can certainly you know take that and uh, put it out into the marketplace. And that's what he's doing. Okay. And so like you're the financial advisor working with this client on a variety of financial things. And then, so when something, when a case like this comes up and your client says, Hey, sure, check it out. Is that where you call somebody like Lisa who now does the research to see if there's a market? That's exactly right. Yeah. There are brokers and, um, I mean, there's there's commercials, you know, there is a, a commercial for a company that does advertise this stuff, which is good for the market, because it really people have no idea that they that they even 
it's, it's just such a mind numbing thought that, oh, there's a market, somebody wants to buy an insurance policy, but the market is very alive and well. And I mean, Lisa can speak to the statistics on that part of it, but um, yeah, when people are aware of it, then certainly they're um, depending on if they need the money or you know not. And typically most people who've, in, who've paid premiums, even if they're term premiums, if they can recover that, obviously that's, um, you know, that's beneficial for them. It's beneficial for the family. And, and, you know, let's do, just so that we're all kind of speaking the same language. Um, can you define the different types? So a term policy is, well, I'll let you, you all define the different policies uh, sure. that are out there. Sure. I mean, the, the original type of policy was a term policy. And think about the mariner, the, the guy going to sea and coming back, you know, buying the policy if the, if the ship doesn't come back. That you pay a premium if the person comes back. There's no there's no benefit paid if the ship never comes back. The person gets paid. So then that evolved to, gosh, I keep giving you all these premiums, you know, and and my you know my husband's keeps coming back from you know to the port, and I have nothing to show for it. So then it evolved into this whole life, this concept. Well, you pay a little bit more, and you have a policy that stays in effect the whole time. So there's kind of the, the term life is a temporary, you know, just goes for a term of years and it terminates. And then there's a whole life, which goes for your whole life. And then in between in the 80s and 90s, we've come up with universal life, which is basically because of high interest rates. The universal life policies came about where you have um, high interest rates. So people thought they could get a better rate of return through using these sh short term instruments. Um, so the industry created the universal life. Then really in the 90s, people were really hot to trot about the stock market. So then it became, well, you can own, you know, sort of these sub-account mutual fund looking sub-accounts inside of an insurance policy. And so this evolution has, has come down the road where you essentially have permanent type policies, which are universal life and whole life. And then you have the term policy. And any of these policies can potentially be uh, purchasable or saleable. And I mean, I think Lisa, you're probably in a better position to talk about the nuances of that, because I think a lot of people think, oh, a term policy, it's going to terminate. But there's some details well, to that. Well, so Sybil uh, gets the gold star for the first question today. And it was one that I had too, is I had no idea that you could sell ter a term insurance policy. Who would want it? And uh, tell us how that works, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. If I can backstory this just a little bit, Steve, you asked a question a little bit ago about what is a life settlement. So if you wouldn't mind, let me define what it is. Okay. Um, a life insurance settlement is simply a financial transaction. Once again, think about your life insurance policy as an asset, right? Like your car or like your house. And what happens is the buyers, these typically investor groups are the ones who purchase these policies. They're going to give clients a lump sum of cash. And what's going to happen is that client is going to transfer their life insurance policy, the ownership of their life insurance policy over to these investor groups who are going to pay the premium and are making themselves the beneficiary. So they're not doing this out of the goodness of their own heart, but we, we they're important because without buyers, we can't help clients, right? So that's why they're willing to give clients cash because they know they're going to get their return. It's just a function of rent. So there's the backstory about what a life, life insurance settlement or life settlement for short is now. Back to term policy. How in the world does that work? Um, so Troy's right, right? Term policies end at some point in time. That's the level term period. Those are the, the period of my low, in, my low premium payments. You can still continue your term policy after it quote unquote ends, but it goes up, the premium goes up really high. It's what's called annual renewable term mode or ARTS insurance geeks call it. Um, and the premiums jump and they jump up every, every year high. So my point here is, 
typically in order to sell a term policy, the term policy needs to be convertible. So all you out, everybody out there that has a term policy, look inside your policy, call your insurance agent, call the insurance company and ask, um, is my policy still convertible? And what's my conversion deadline? Every policy will have a deadline in there that you can convert up to. So convert means I can convert my term policy to a universal life or whole life policy, as Troy was mentioning, without health uh, questionnaires. And that's, and that's important. That's the key. Yeah. That's the key. So, and the reason for that is the buyers are not excited about these high term premiums that go up every year. It's really, um, uh, it's unpredictable cash flow for them, right? So, they like these policies to be convertible, even though the premiums are higher over the course of time, they're more stable. Now, that's 97, 98% of the time, uh, two to 3% of the time, we can still sell non convertible terms, but typically has to be convertible, not past the conversion deadline. Okay, and and I imagine like the one sort of the example that Troy brought up is where maybe a business owner had a a very high term policy where the value of that would make it worth um, worth worth uh, investing in it. No, absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know. In, in his case, and in a lot of cases, I mean, their term policies, you know, you can buy a high face amount for, you know, a lower dollar amount. So, of course, it has a great utility, um, you know, whole life costs a little bit more. And, and that's a longer term play that some, you know, people do, you know, don't necessarily engage in. In fact, you know, it's probably there, there's more there's more juice in the orange on a term policy that's convertible typically, you know, than there is in a whole life policy that's got a ton of cash value in terms of, you know, the person can simply surrender the policy and take the cash value um so uh, now uh lisa as you were describing this life insurance settlement uh what popped into my brain is just with all these conversations that i have with frantic adult children and and you know scrambling around is is that does number one i can see why this this business needs to be heavily regulated um, but number two, do you ever run into problems where, you know, the kids are like, what dad, you assigned your policy to, you know, uh, to get some cash. I was counting on that for my retirement, you know? Uh, the answer to your question, we don't run into that. And here's the reason why. A couple, couple of things. The first thing to realize is, and you put that on, your, on the first screen, is two and a half million seniors a year will basically get rid of their life insurance policies, right? 500,000 of them will lapse their policies. And the lapse um, definition is that they stop making the premium payments and let them go. Um, Two million seniors will surrender their policies, um, as uh, as Troy was mentioning. They go cash out the policies and get the cash out. So typically, the policies that we work with are a going to be gone anyway. Uh -huh. um, but but more important, and I'll get to this slide in a second. But more important, thank you for bringing it up. Um, in our world, remember we were talking about all those uh, protections and the regulations. These buyers can be and are audited by the Departments of Insurance. Nobody wants any problems, right? So during the course of selling a policy, the beneficiaries have to sign off. 
So nobody is surprised as to what is going on here, because at the end of the day, if the beneficiaries want to pay for the policy that the client is going to let go, then they should do that, right? They should keep it for their family. But we're here to say, before you two and a half million seniors, let your policies go or walk away from them. Please don't do that until you look at a life insurance settlement, because we're just here to get people more money than walking away with little or nothing. Yeah. Okay. I, I get it. And, um, and I imagine, and, and we can dive into the process, but so this is, sounds to me like just because you say, yes, I am open to selling my life insurance policy and doing a life insurance settlement. Uh, it just doesn't happen like that. It sounds like there's a lot of checks and balances. It's, you know, sort of like buying and selling a home. You don't just move in tomorrow. That, well, that's exactly right. And there is, if you could find the real brief slide, it's just very quick okay. about um, the process. It's toward the end of the slide deck, but you are right. I look at ourselves like real estate agents for life insurance policies. We are here to market a client's policy to get the most amount of money for it that we possibly can with many different buyers. And this is indeed a three to five month process. It does start with an application. There's no application fee. Um, we get medical records, bluntly. Uh, client's life expectancy is a key component to how much the buyers want to pay for a policy. Th this is not for people who are 33 years old and running marathons. The buyers don't want to wait 50 years, frankly, for their, their payoff, right? So typically they're looking for clients with 10 to 15 years of life expectancy or less, sometimes 20, maybe a little bit longer than that if the policy is a very high value policy. Um, so the shorter someone's life expectancy is, the more valuable the policy is for them, the more money they can get. So my point is we have to get medical records so these buyers can underwrite, if you will, for life expectancy. We also get illustrations to show what the premium projections are on these policies to carry the policy out because every buyer is a little different, but they typically are evaluating the policies the same way. How much premium do they have to pay? Right. So the lower the premium is relative to the face value of the policy, the better for clients. How much, what's the client's life expectancy? How much, you know, how long do I have to pay it? And of course, what the death benefit is of the policy is a key consideration. So one through four here, will typically take about 60 to 90 days. It takes a while to get medical records in. The buyers need time for their review. And an offer is made or it's not. Um, and if it's if offer's not made, client walks away. If an offer is made, clients are not obligated to take it. That's really important. They can decide, you know what? Not enough money for me to even mess with it. And they walk away. They don't owe um, anybody any money for shopping the policy. So, and then back to your point, like uh, real estate, escrow is opened when a client says, yes, I want to do that. There's a contract regulated by departments of insurance, by the way. Um, and escrow is opened to protect clients and the change forms are sent into the carrier at that point. Once that's done, then within one to three days, clients have their money. So start to finish three to five months. But the key component here is um, no obligation and, and certainly no cost to find out how much a policy is worth. Great. And, and like you both have said, these are policies that an individual is sort of like, okay, I'm done with paying term 
you know, my wife has passed away. There's, you know, what have you. I'm just going to stop making premiums. I'll tell you some of the heart wrenching things that I've heard too is the people who's may have developed cognitive impairment or dementia and they they intended to keep on paying but they let it lapse by mistake and i think those are the heart-wrenching things because from time to time i have the adult child that's sort of like dad let the life insurance lapse and i heard that there's a way that he could have got money from that and we need money you know to get him into the care home yeah Um, that's exactly right yeah, that's okay. a that that's a big issue. Um, um, okay, Linda has a question here, and she's got some acronyms that I may not you may need to help me with. It says seems many restrictions on FEGLI want to sell and stop paying premiums, but OPM states essentially this is not possible. What can we what can we do? with an F-E-G-L-I policy that no, no longer want, that we can't can't get back up to its value at some point. Oh, and she writes there, the federal employee group life insurance. Okay, um, do you all understand Linda's question there? I do, um, FEGLI policies, and this is, this is for federal employees, so people who've been in the post office. Actually, I worked on a client's policy that was with the CIA, so that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. FEGLI policies, are, it's possible. Um, they are more difficult because benefits can go down over time, first of all. And second of all, in this particular case that we were working on, the premiums would still be taken out of the client's pension. And that was a really big issue as well. And the last issue, and this is not just Fegley policies, but any group term policy or group policy in general, we can sell group policies. They just get more complicated because trying to find out what those premiums look like going into the future, I mentioned that term illustration, that is the challenge as well. But Fegley policies, group policies will be evaluated the way individual policies are. They do get more challenging um, just because of the specific um, uh, guidelines inside uh, the group policies themselves. Great. I, I, I was going to say, I hope you answered that question because I wanted to go back to an interesting point about um, about the market and universal life policies and the type of policies that are basically being lapsed. If I, I didn't want, I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, Steve. Go, go, go right ahead. That's a good because, point, Troy. Yeah, because, and this is really a, a really important point where I think that's where a lot of, if I want to say missed opportunities for people to do planning and actually, you know, re- recover monies that they've spent. So if we go back for a minute in the universal life market, which universal life became very popular, really, you know, at the end of the high inflation in the 70s, late 70s, into the early 90s or into the early 80s, I'm sorry. And those interest rates were so high that people were actually getting rid of their whole life policies that were paying, you know, the 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 uh, dividends were paying eight or nine percent because of, you know, the what was supporting the dividend. And, uh, but interest rates were so high, you know, 13, 15, 17% that people were getting rid of their whole life and purchasing these universal life policies. Well, one of the problems was that the policy just looked at today's interest rate and carried that, that assumption forward into infinity. And so if you look at a policy that's getting a 15%, you know, uh, rate of return, yeah, of course you can pay quite a small premium and the policy carries, but the, the sad reality became that people put their policy into a drawer and never looked at it again. 
and in, interest rates systematically came down from that that zenith in the you know the early 80s and just sort of systematically tapered down um so that the assumption didn't come true and these policies essentially ran out of fuel they ran out of gas um and so that's where these people are are standing you know on the precipice saying okay well are we going to start driving you know big money into this policy to keep it going or are we just going to let the policy lapse? And of course, the typical scenario is that the policy is going to let it lapse unless the person is close to, you know, um, to their life expectancy. There's just not enough, uh, you know, resources to keep the policy in force. And that's where these these policies find their way to the to the trash bin, if you will. Um, and, and so those are the kinds of policies that we see. They're essentially policies that are at this crossroads. They're still in force. The person is definitely uninsurable. They can't buy more insurance, uh, nor do they even want to, but they're just faced with this idea of paying a very high premium. So they sort of have the family meeting, the kids, are the kids going to take it over or whatnot? And it's all decided like, hey, you know, you guys have enough money. As long as you can live live it out, let, let the policy go. Those are the ones that probably have the highest impact for kind of recovery of your premium and enhancing and maybe creating a fund, honestly, for long-term care or other, other uh, you know, medical expenses that may not have been planned for, because as you know, medical expenses are very high these days. So yeah. if I could add on to what, I'm sorry, Steve, if I could add on to what Troy just said with, with an actual client example, because we see these policies all the time. They are our number one seller, um, we insurance geeks say they're uh, universal uh, life policies that have been blow that have blown up or imploding for exactly what Troy said. So here's an example that we're selling right now. Um, the client is 72 year old gentleman, lovely man, has a million dollar universal life policy. His his uh, policy now has six thousand dollars of cash in it. That's it, and he has to put in brace yourself twenty five hundred dollars a month to keep it going, and he doesn't want to do that. So his options are to surrender it, cash it out, if you will, for $6,000 or selling it. And fortunately, his financial advisor said, let's look, you know, let's talk to Lisa. And we're selling it for $150,000, oh, which last time I checked beats six. Yeah. And and also the, what did you say, $2,500 a month? Mm -hmm. Plus saving the premiums of $30,000 a year. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. Well, that, that's a great example. Now, unfortunately, Linda, going back to her question on the Fegley policies, says um, these are the what we've discovered from the talks with OPM. We were totally boxed in when we want to get rid of the policy and realize some of its value now. So um, is, is, is that the case or is there a workaround with the Fegleys? I would, I would say that, once again, we have worked on Fegley's. They are more difficult. Clients typically, bluntly, have much shorter life expectancies. So I would suggest that she does talk to um, a life settlement uh, professional uh, because maybe there could be something here or not. They just, they just are more challenging for sure. Um, okay. Uh, and Lisa, if, if it's okay, I'll drop your email in uh, to... And, and your contact into the, um, even though now you're based in California, uh, but can you talk to people all over the country? Right. We work, we work nationwide. Okay, great, great. So I'm going to, um, uh, Linda, I'm going to drop Lisa's contact in there and it might be worth shooting her an email or reaching out and maybe she can uncover something that, that you didn't, um, discover. Uh, okay. 
Uh, Sybil had a question, uh, and and Troy, you typed a response in there, but but just it's a great discussion topic. Are 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 these uh, hundred thousand policies or one million? What is there sort of a, a limit or a level, or, or is it all life insurance policies, regardless of value? I should say. Lisa, you jump in there on that because you see a lot more than I do. I mean, I the one case that I have actually right now is a hundred thousand dollar policy. So I mean, there's a lot of small, you know, small, and they're still relevant. I mean, it's money that people can use. I mean, it's a recovery of premium. But Lisa, you see a lot more flow of you know these policies than I do. Right. So typically, what what I'm not here to say is remember we talked about that two and a half million number. What I'm not here to say is that all two and a half million seniors could have sold their policy, right? But what I am here to say is you saw the number that 3,000 last year sold their policy. There's an awful, that's an awful big gap and so many more could have, is my point. Anyways, uh, back to you, $100,000 of face value or more is typical. So that's what I'm saying that a lot of those two and a half million could have been what we call the final expense policies of 15,000, 20,000, 25,000. Those are, do not really have any market value. There's just not enough money there for clients, frankly, to have it make sense. So it's right around the 100,000 of face value. Now, I'm not saying it's a hard and fast rule. We're working on an $80,000 policy um, right now. The gentleman is 86 years old, does have Parkinson's. He's got a $30,000 loan on it, and the policy is just getting too expensive. It's universal life. And we're getting him $10,000 for it, and he's absolutely thrilled. So once again, it's right around that 100,000 mark. Okay. Now, um, Sybil has another question, and there's some great questions. We're going to get to all of them, folks, but I, I just noticed one of your slides that may answer some of this. And Sybil says, if they got 100000 to 250k policy, how much could they sell it for? What's the general percentage? And I saw this slide. Yes, yes, oh. I know where you're going. Okay. That is perfect. So um, let me back, once again, I'm gonna backstory this and let's think about how the investors think because that is the way to look at what a policy is worth. In At the end of the day, Troy alluded to it earlier. We do not know what a policy is going to bring until we market a, the policy. I don't know what the investors are gonna think the life expectancy is. And I obviously don't know the premiums, but here are three different examples. These are all term policies, by the way. You can see the wide variety and here's the reason why. We talked about it earlier. The investors are looking at, right? How much premium do I have to pay for how long? And what's the death benefit of the policy? So let me give you these three examples. The first one is a gentleman um, in North Carolina, by the, way, by the way, 78 years old. He does have cancer. It is manageable cancer, um, but he does have cancer. And you're going to ask yourself, good gracious, why would he sell his policy? Um, and Because I asked him. He said, look, I bought this for my wife in case something happened to me, she'd be taken care of. But I lost her four years ago. My daughters of the beneficiaries, they don't need the money. They have good careers. Their husbands have good careers. So if I can get uh, sell the policy and get enough money to make my life more comfortable while I'm here, that's what I want to do. The opening offer on his policy was $15,000. And then um, by the time we're done marketing, it's $128,500 because he had a shorter life expectancy. He had another five years left on his term before the term ended. The second one, this gentleman is 68, so it's not necessarily an age thing. It's age and health. Um, this gentleman, um, his term policy was ending. And like Troy was saying, he wasn't going to do anything with it. 
and uh, he does have some liver issues. So opening offer was 50,000 and uh, we wound up settling for 75. The, because once again, not only was he younger, but he didn't have cancer, didn't have, um, he had a longer life expectancy. The last one's actually a friend of mine, um, 72 years old, uh, redhead, beautiful woman. She is uh, very healthy, which is great. Same thing as the second gentleman, the term policy was ending, didn't want it anymore, wasn't going to do anything with it. And because once again, she had a longer life expectancy, we got $8,000 for that policy. Point is I have $250,000 policies right now that we can't sell. Either the premiums are too high, life expectancy is too long, whatever it happens to be. Um, it's so specific to each client, how much uh, we're able to obtain for them. Yeah, and but again, even that $8,000, if you're gonna let it lapse for whatever reason, that's $8,000 that you didn't have. And that's right. Um, she was like, Merry Christmas to me. Like literally yeah. we sold it right before Christmas. She was thrilled. Now I, I love Joe Sperling's uh, comment. And he says, one important reason for considering a life settlement is when there's a need for long-term care, but no long-term care insurance policy. And I get these calls on a weekly basis from adult children trying to figure out how mom and dad can pay for care and this could be a resource that they tap into yeah absolutely true and so many times if first of all people never think that a term policy is an asset that can be sold right, right. Um, if they do have a life insurance policy i've heard a lot of people say well we just cashed it out and so on average what i'm here to say though is on average if you have a policy that has that cash in it like troy was saying those universal life or whole life policies on average selling a policy will generate three to five times cash surrender value. Wow. Um, and Troy, no, you, the Lisa website has some really great statistics on it about what, what the uh, market looked like last year. But last year, that number was about eight times that cash surrender value in a policy. Yeah. And um, here I've got the Lisa site. And I think this might be the page that you're that's the one. Yeah, that's exactly the one. This is so Lisa, um, what they, they have obviously members that are buyers that will uh, Lisa will survey them and these buyers will tell them blindly. Right. There's no names or anything used. These members will tell them um, what their their per policy purchasing look like last year. And so these Lisa members represent 95 percent of the market. And so you can see that um, if you scroll down, Steve, you'll see that it is about um, five times right in the middle, five times higher than the cash surrender values offered by the life insurance carrier. So what happens is instead of the clients surrendering those policies and cashing them out, they sold them and they got $638 million more than they would have gotten if they lapsed or surrendered the policy. Wow. And so... I think most of the time when I'm talking to families, they are referencing that there's, I know there's a value to your life insurance. Mom got something in the mail. And that's, that's why this is an investable category because there's value here. And the insurance company is trying to get out of it before they have to pay five times more. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Sybil, as uh, Sybil, you get a gold star today. You've got some great questions. If an adult child has a power of attorney, can they sell the parent's policy? 
Many fall, fall a few dollars over to qualify for benefits. And yes, if the kids are set, they'd rather not use their own dollars for long-term care. Um, yes, that's exactly right. And we do see that. So Sybil, yes, the answer to your question is, um, powers of attorney are fine. So it, it, Steve, we were talking about earlier these, these client protections, and this goes right along with to Sybil's question. Besides having um, the beneficiary sign off, inside of the contract itself, the sale contract, the, there's going to be a doctor letter that a client's doctor does need to sign that this, this client is of sound mind to complete the transaction. Clearly, if there are some health impairments where that is not the case, the power of attorney does have the right and will sign not only the contract, but um, get the doctor letter for that person's, like the power of attorney um, has the, the uh, mental capacity to complete the transaction. So yes, we do work with powers of attorney, absolutely fine. And tomorrow our, our, our discussion is on estate planning. So it, again, getting these tools in place in advance of losing capacity is really important because without that, you know, it, you're, you're could be in a tough uh, situation. Right. Um, the client may not be able to sell the policy. Go ahead, Troy. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a really good point too, because I mean, how many people that are our age are suffering trying to take care of our parents and they lose their capacity and we're trying to juggle the you know our uh, capacity as acting as a trustee you know and and these are these are challenging things to keep our loved ones in comfort and here's a policy that we can't afford to keep in place but maybe if we can you know juice the orange and get some money out of it then maybe we can maintain that lifestyle for our loved one for a longer period of time so that's why this the discussion is so important it's and it's it's frankly it's I, I think one of the other interesting things about the industry is that there's there's a lot of opacity in in the the fact that this can be done and I think part of it has to do with the insurance companies just in general you know this sort of it doesn't fit into their actuarial assumptions you know when when the when the 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 life insurance you know um, company is you know baking the cake. They're, they have to figure out, you know, what are our expenses are going to be? What's our rate of return on money? And how many of these policies are going to lapse so that we collected the premiums and we didn't have to pay the death benefit? So when we start talking about ways to keep these policies on the books, it, it really raises the blood pressure of the insurance companies and the actuaries. But I don't think that's really held out to be true that it's that it's really materially negatively impacted the insurance business. It's just it's sort of this unknown variable that's been thrown into the hopper for them. And that's why they have kind of opposed it. And I think um, now you kind of see more of a trend where they're really trying to capture that a little bit and, tr and trying to uh, actually make the offer to the client. Still, I think, at least from my perspective, the it's still absolutely worth the price of admission to, to sort of shop it through a broker, a broker channel, like someone like Lisa um, you do. And that's part of the question there is what does it cost? There is a commission that is paid and that's all regulated, at least in the state of California, that's all statutory, meaning it is written in the laws. And so there's no chicanery. There's no, you know, funny business about that. It's a full blown disclosed, Hey, this policy is selling for X amount of dollars. Here's the commission that you're paying. And even at that point, the client can say, you know what? I don't want to do this at any point along the continuum. They can say that they don't want to do it. So um, the, the transparency of the regulation of the industry, I think is really, you know, it's, it's one of those really good things because it protects the consumer. 
and obviously we can talk about HIPAA, the privacy issues. I mean, all of these things, that's the reason that, you know, in around 2000 that every, you know, states started jumping on this insurance commissioner because of protecting the rights, you know, of, of seniors and it's all important stuff. And I think it's, I think that it's a well oiled machine. It's just that not a lot of people know that they have the option. I think that's the challenge. Yeah, no, definitely. And that, thanks for addressing uh, Degeb's question is what is the service fee for selling a policy, but that service fee is transparent the same way the, just like selling your home, there's this 6% or whatever, and you see it in there, uh, in, in that transaction, uh, there, what, what, is it a standard, uh, commission rate or is it variable depending on the price of the policy? Yeah. So, uh, good question. I'm going to back backstory this by saying commissions are negotiable. That's a good thing. And back to both of your points, the commissions are disclosed as part of the transparency of the sale process. Um, they are disclosed, and it's not they're not disclosed on page 46, subsection two, you know, in mm -hmm. six point print. It is a separate page that literally will say these are the commissions. So point is the maximum commission that we can receive, and operative word here is maximum, is one third of what we obtained for the client or 8% of the face value of the policy, whichever one is less. So the bottom line is the more we obtain for the client, frankly, everybody benefits. We benefit along with it, bluntly. Um, so it's it's a it's a win-win-win for everybody, frankly. But the gentleman I was telling you about where we sold it for 150,000, the opening offer on his policy was $30,000. And so our commission on that was $40,000, but he was thrilled because he would have sold it for 30, you know, if he, you know, just didn't know and, and responded to the ad on TV or whatever. So point is that, um, but commissions are negotiable. Okay. And I, yes. And um, I, I'm sorry, I missed Elizabeth's question. She uh, says the example that Lisa gave, did the buyer of the policy have to continue paying the $2,500 premium? How does that work? Yeah, they do. That's a good question, Elizabeth. So what happens is this gentleman has transferred ownership of the policy to the buyer. The buyer now owns it. So the buyer is on the hook for the premiums. They have to pay it. And that is why the premiums are a big component to determining how much these buyers are going to pay for the policy. Okay. But and but the owner of the the the, the original owner of the policy needs to keep on paying that premium through this whole sales and negotiation process because you don't want that to lapse and then uh but once that we don't have an that we don't have an asset to sell. If it lapses, there's nothing to sell. So you're right. Through the whole process, they have to keep the premiums up. Okay, great. And then uh, I I, I want to bring up your slide on the downsides of yeah. these. But uh, I just saw a question popped in where it said, "Good explanation. Are you saying insurance companies are for or against life insurance settlements?" Explanation is still not that clear. Like, what what is the temperature? of the insurance industry and, and these settlements. They're not excited about it. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they are not gonna they are not gonna stand on the mountaintop and shout that this is available. Um, and the reason for that is as Troy was saying, um, and once again, this is not about big bad insurance companies. Please understand. I'm just I believe in insurance, but I also believe that when a you know policy is no longer needed, they should sell, they should sell it because they can't. So point is Insurance companies aren't excited about it because of this reason, no disrespect. If you lapse or surrender your policy, that is pure profit for that insurance company. You've paid the premiums this whole time, they don't have to pay a claim. 
When an invest right when an investor purchases the policy, these these insurance companies know this investor is not going to let this policy last. So they know they're looking at a claim. It's just a function of when they're going to have to pay the claim. Now, one could make the case they're going to get some premiums for the next 5, 10, 15 years. There's a little cash flow there. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to pay a claim and they're not excited about it. Yeah. And currently, you know, the statistics that we saw at the beginning is most of these policies lapse, you, you yes. know, and they're benefiting from that. And it's sort of like, you know, we're paying for homeowners insurance and never having a claim That's right. your entire life. Uh, so, um, okay. Let me, because we've talked about some of the benefits, let's talk about some of the downsides. Uh, and I saw that you have this slide on the negatives of, if you know, what are the negatives of a life insurance settlement? Sure. Uh, so I have really never seen anybody not sell their policy because of the negatives, uh, just because once again, the policies we work on are gonna be gone, but you're right, let's talk about them because it's important people know. Um, taxes, they, the, the uh, proceeds may be taxable. And I am going to backstory this by saying, I'm not a CPA or a tax professional. People absolutely need to talk to their tax professionals. But point is here, my the information that I have, and I can send people tax articles, is the um, premiums that you've put into the policy since the beginning of the policy are a basis. It's what you have paid for this asset. And if the settlement money is underneath that basis, there should be no tax. But if it's over that basis, up until that basis, up until the premium, uh, the premium amount should be tax-free. And then over that is typically long-term capital gains. Now, not to get in too much of the weeds, there could be a small corridor in there where there's some ordinary income specifically on policies where the cash value is higher than the um, than the basis. That little corridor could be ordinary income and then a long-term uh, long uh, capital gains after that. Troy, that's, that's typical life insurance taxation. Um, and yeah. Troy would probably be better able to explain that part of it. I mean, I'm not a CPA, but that's, you know, that's, you're, you're on point with that. There's, um, you know, some of these policies, uh, yeah, of course, you're going to have cap gains if, if it sells for in excess of the cost basis. Thank you. So the second one is being able to obtain just a life insurance. So once again, if clients wanted their life insurance policy, typically they don't need want additional life insurance, but that can be an issue. A lot of carriers today are asking the question, have you ever sold a policy? And if you say yes, they're not going to issue the policy. So on top of that, clients, by the time that they sell the policy, may have health issues and may not be able to qualify for additional life insurance. And the third point, and this may be important to people listening, is if people are on government funding programs like Medi-Cal here in California, Medicaid, um, clients will get a 1099 in January for their net proceeds that they receive. And so that could impact um, government funding. Now, what I will say is this would be a good place to talk to and consult an elder law attorney. Um, they will know how to take care of that. We have sold uh, policies for clients that have Medicaid or Medi-Cal, but then elder law attorney has um, uh, positioned it so that it works. Um, and the last one is creditor debt. This is a very unique situation as well. If I'm in bankruptcy, and I sell my policy while I'm in bankruptcy, that, that money is now part of what's called the bankruptcy estate and the creditors can get it. 
but we work with clients all the time that have bankruptcies in their past. That's not a problem. The buyers are just going to want to see those um, bankruptcy discharge papers to make sure the policy is not encumbered or promised to a creditor, which I haven't seen happen yet because bankruptcy courts tend to not know that policies are assets that can be sold. Man, this, this is great. I think we've covered all the bases and uh, we've... And see, whenever I start doing that, another question pops up. So as we're getting towards the top of the hour and we're winding down here, but it says, this helps. Thank you. Insurance company, they know with investor owning the policy and paying the premium that they will eventually have to pay a claim. The point is the time, just don't know when, much clearer. Thank you. Okay. So they that was a great explanation. So um, um Anyway. I, I would, if I was going to throw another, uh, I'm going to throw another, you know, negative in there that that's a potential is, you know, the investor group doesn't know, right? The, the, there's a, the, the investor group doesn't know if the person has passed away. So from time to time, the investment group will call and, and part of that process is designating a, a, a person to be communicated with for the investment group to say, hey, is Jane Doe, is John Doe still alive? And it's, it's, you know, that can be kind of a, you know, an obtuse moment, you know, but, but, but you can get that call and, you know, it is regulated that that's a, a right that the, that the new owner has to, to be able to make contact with the, the stated person, um, the person that was designated for, for that. So, you know, um, it, it can be an issue. It's something that at least the person should know about, Hey, by, by way of, and it's, it's all in the contract, but it's just, it's worth iterating that point. Um, you know, you, you have to be able to deal with that. And typically it would be the person who's selling the policy saying, yeah, you can call me, <laughs> you know, so right. anyway. Um, and back to Troy's, Troy's point, he's right. The good news, remember we talked about all the regulations, the regulations state once again, state by state, but typically it's the, the buyers cannot call more than once a quarter. Um, so it's not like they're going to call every day. And <laughs> many of them don't, right? Which prior to, right, viatical days, hello. Uh, but uh, the also the the issue or until once they have like a year to live i don't know how they even determine that they can call up to once a quarter but or once a once a month point here is that the buyers have these um they can't call a lot and number two is they don't want to call a lot anyway so many of them don't call once a quarter they don't want to do more administration than they have to but but they can by law that's true great great um i'm i'm scanning your slide deck i i feel like we've covered everything we've talked about how this is could be a found source of money that if you let a policy lapse it's worth investigating and if you receive a note from your insurance company saying hey we'll give you this much for your policy check out life insurance settlements because historically five times more um, funding by going through a broker as opposed to selling to the insurance company. Um, the, um, uh, the, the industry is very transparent. And let's, I think we can kind of wrap things up on, on this slide here because I think it's a good reminder is uh, Lisa, because so few people know about life insurance settlements uh, do you want to kind of walk through these eight myths and, uh, you know, just remind people about it? 
Yep, I'd be delighted to. Uh, so we find that even when 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 I talk to insurance and financial professionals, uh, many of them either don't know about life settlements or have those misperceptions as well. So I'm so pleased that Troy is here because, as you mentioned, he's very proactive in looking at this from a holistic perspective, and many advisors don't. And so grateful to be able to because these these are some of the myths that they have. So they think, oh well, Lisa, you know, only those universal life or whole life policies. I can sell and we know we can sell term. Um, most people do not sell their policies to pay medical bills. They don't. They sell their policies because they don't want the policy. They don't need the policy. Perhaps they can't afford the policy anymore. You know what they bought the policy for 10, 15, 20 years ago is no longer a concern. House is paid off. The kids are gone. Maybe my spouse has passed away. I'm looking for ways to pay for assisted living or memory care or home care. Most people do not pay, sell their policies to pay for medical bills. It's just because I don't need this thing anymore. I can't afford it. We talked about, hey, uh, uh, the, this is available for $100,000-ish, right, or more face value. So many people think, oh, it's only those million, $2 million policies that those these investors want. No, look, smaller face values are here. Only the six seller policies, not true. If I'm 75 or 80 or 85, I can be pretty healthy, right? We talked about a life expectancy window. I can be pretty healthy to fit in that life expectancy window. We also have clients in their 50s, but they have significant health issues to fit in that life expectancy window. So it's not just for sick. I can be pretty healthy the older I am. Um, the investors only want people in their 80s or 90s. Not true. Um, obviously, at 80 or 90, every investor's in the pool looking, right? Uh, but once again, we have clients in their 50s. And clients do not have to sell their entire policy. Let's just say, as Troy mentioned, oh. this... Um, business owner that has this term policy that's no longer needed. Uh, we're working with a business owner right now that wants to keep part of it for himself and his family. He's converting part of it for himself. Don't let the rest of it go to waste. Um, we're selling it. This is not available just for wealthy people. It's available for everybody. And we do know that the industry is well-regulated. It is not illegal. This is not STOLI, which is stranger-originated life insurance. And so what that is, real quickly, not that long ago, strangers were going up to seniors, preying on them bluntly, buying life insurance policies on them, and there was no uh, relationship between the two. They were paying the seniors money to get a life insurance policy. And oh my they were, God. Yes, they were. And they were uh, making themselves the owner. They're paying the premium and they are they were the beneficiary. That's not what we're talking about here. Stoli is a legal, thank goodness, been legal illegal since about 2010, 2011. Thank goodness for that. And the reason that this is not the same is because when these policies were issued, once again, 5, 10, 30 years ago, the owner and the beneficiary are related. The beneficiary are the kids, the spouse, the trust, the business owner, right? There's a relationship there. We're only transferring ownership to a buyer, an investor group. Thank you, Grigsby versus Russell, that allows us to do that. Okay. And uh, I see we're at the top of the hour, but we got one more question here. What if a policy has an accelerated death benefit uh, of sell policy? Do you lose the ability to use this long-term long-term care benefit if you need that benefit? Yeah. I mean, if you need the accelerated death benefit, that should be the way to go. That is going to be a better option for you and your family than certainly selling a policy. Um, from an investor's perspective, from a selling perspective, the accelerated death benefit doesn't matter because they are literally just looking for the death benefit itself. Okay. 
Right. Yeah, the investment the investment group is basically, and that's why it doesn't matter what the size of the policy is. It's the rate of return on money. They're saying, okay, if, if we if we you know acquire this policy for twenty thousand dollars, and we know that we're going to have to pay another twenty thousand in premium over the course, and then and they're looking at the over and under. Which, by the way, the senior doesn't have to do a physical. It's just we're just taking, you know, the 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 process just takes medical records, you know, and they look at it and they say the over and under is another twenty thousand in premium. Maybe let's say thirty on the outside. They're looking at a fifty thousand dollar investment over the course of time. They're doing a discounted cash flow to figure out what their cost of, you know, what the cost of acquisition is, and then they know that they're going to receive a hundred thousand dollars at such a date in the future. And they'd back into the math and say, okay, is this ROI? Uh, you know, is this is this good for our portfolio for for what it is that we're trying to achieve? So, you know, that's the process that they go through on their side, and that's not really relevant per se to the you know to the client. They're they're just they're getting the money, so um, that's what's relevant to them. Man, this has been great, and uh, the um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, <laughs> of course, now more questions. That's okay, guys. It, just so you know, this is recorded. Okay. So you can go to proaging.com and see the recording. I'll, I'll upload the slide deck and it'll be there. And, and we'll have Troy and Lisa's uh, com comments in there. Um, and uh, so Deb says, I'm coming into the webinar a little late. Are you talking about individual? Deb, uh, listen to the, 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 I know you're coming a little bit late. But in a couple of hours, this will be up on our website, and I would listen to it. It's all life insurance policies are covered here. Um, and the well, um, yep. Yeah. Elizabeth, I'm sorry, did you address that? What are the downside for the investor? Yeah, if the person lives too long, but it doesn't really, you know, I mean, it just depends on what the premiums are. But I mean, on the other side of it, as an investment, just just a, a brief on that one. Um, that that's regulated on the buy side in California as well, which is kind of an interesting topic unto itself, but you know, that you have to have a certain net worth to even be able to purchase the policies and that it, it needs to, unless you're an accredited investor needs to, you know, not exceed, I think 10% of your total portfolio, which I don't think it probably would recommend it to own 10% anyway, maybe five, maybe 3% of a portfolio. So you have to think of this as sort of in a way, private money, or, you know, an investment ingredient within a very large portfolio. And this is just one little piece, you know, a la, you know, uh, uh, I think Michigan pension uh, state, or is it this, the public employees re retirement system? You know, they own something in the order of, of a billion, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of investment groups actually own this as an ingredient. It's a very small ingredient in a large portfolio. Um, so it's, it's interesting stuff, though. Great, great. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, you could look at it from an investor perspective, none of us bat a, a thousand on our, on our investment portfolios. And for these investments, some of the uh, investors are going to buy a policy of somebody who lives to 120, and, uh, you know, and that's just going to be, you know, but not the return that they wanted. Um right. So uh, anyways, this has been a great discussion. I'm really glad, Lisa, thanks for reaching out to me and suggesting this because it's a very uh, relevant and I think that it, uh, it expands some th the, the, the people's knowledge base of something that they clearly don't know anything about. And when I say that, the statistics bears is that most people don't know that this option is available to them. And so hopefully, uh, we can make some lives a little bit better with this, this information. So, uh, well, 
thanks a lot. Thanks to everybody who uh, jumped in and uh, we will look forward to seeing you at the next one. Thank you, Steve. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.